All right. Three, two, one. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, the number one value investing podcast in the world, on air live, quarantine with my co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hope everybody had a great week. We are going to finish out the week talking about the markets today. We haven't really given an update on a lot of the markets and because we didn't really want to make it like a day-to-day like movement in the market and everything mm-hmm. like that. So maybe what we'll do is we'll start dedicating like Fridays to just talking about the market, um, you know, and what happened throughout the week and just try to make it as actual as possible for everybody listening. If this is the first time that you're tuning with us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. And then of course, if you're listening on the podcast side of things, a rating and review goes really far for Sir Jeff Gannon and myself. Um, we are going to be on the Willow Oak YouTube channel. I think we're filming Monday. We are going to do a uh, like a key takeaway of the Berkshire meeting that's happening this weekend. So uh, make sure you look out for that. I'll tweet it out at Focus Compound on my Twitter, but you could also go over to their YouTube channel. Jeff, are you excited for the Berkshire meeting this weekend? Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. You know Munger's not going to be on it, right? I do, Yeah. Which I feel and, like this would have been the best time to hear what he has to say. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. So, and it's all, it's like later in the day. It sounds like it's going to be pretty quick. I mean, I bet you, I don't know. I wonder how it's going to be. Is it going to be like awkward and just, I don't know. It's definitely going to be weird, but. Uh, yeah, it'll be weird. Yeah. Yeah. But we're going to do a key takeaway from it and we're looking forward to doing that. So markets closed down today. Uh, it was, uh, I guess, a pretty somewhat eventful week. Um, a lot of things that stuck out to me, Jeff, this week was we're starting to see more bankruptcies happen, uh-huh. um, uh, which I thought was interesting, especially in oil. Oil, I believe, closed up today. But Chesapeake Energy, I saw they were filing for bankruptcy. Diamond Offshore, they filed mm-hmm. for bankruptcy. Um, and then you could go to you know other industries as well. Retail, JCPenney yeah. is on the, or, or on the edge of bankruptcy, which is a Dallas-based company. J. Crew. Uh, yeah. Yeah, J. Crew today announced that they were, uh, you know, going through that process. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, Hertz as well. I mean, all these companies mm-hmm. that have so much debt, it's like the chickens are coming home to roost. I mean, even Diamond Offshore, I don't remember the numbers right now. I think they had somewhere uh, a staggering amount of debt. I mean, billions, and they only did I think nine million in cash flow last year. <laughs> it's freaking crazy, mm-hmm. you know. What are your yeah, thoughts on that? Are you surprised we're not seeing? I'm kind of surprised that it's not like bam, bam, bam every single you know day, but they're starting to pop up more and more. Yeah, it seems like it's concentrated in um, some energy and some uh, department stores, basically. Yeah. So uh, yeah, J.C. Penney's in Plano, and um, Newman Marcus is in Dallas, and both of them, you know, uh, were on, but they were both on the verge of bankruptcy before this happened um before coronavirus i I would have said both of them were high risk for for uh needing some sort of uh actually pretty high risk for just that they would file for bankruptcy eventually yeah i mean it's uh i think pier one as well i mean i think we're really just going to see this uh you know sort of this takeout and on this podcast we've talked a lot about restaurants Mm. and you've talked a lot about how whatever companies can survive they're going to be able to essentially take market share when everything gets back to normal mm-hmm. as like mom and pops get, you know, sort of carried out and stuff like that as, you know, bad as it is to say that. Um, but for retail, what do you think the situation is? I mean, Amazon obviously is going to do okay. 
Costco's mm-hmm. going to do okay. Walmart's going to be okay. Target's probably going to be okay. I mean, what do you think the retail market's going to look like five years from now, 10 years from now? And not only that, but just mm-hmm. commercial real estate in general. Yeah, that's the bigger problem is probably commercial real estate in terms of people thinking that it was safe and the landlords that you could have a lot more uh, uh, indoor mall stuff having to be repurposed and things like that. Um, just in general, there's a definitely around me, there's the highest vacancies ever. Um, some of that was pretty high coming into this, but it's increased with more vacancies in the last few weeks. Some of those are smaller companies though. And I have noticed, I've been saying that, you know, the general stocks aren't really that attractive in terms of prices, but I had been looking a little more carefully at very small retailers, not uh, necessarily as small as we usually look at, but just small, not the big ones that people would be talking about normally. And actually some of them do look like their stocks are very cheap. Um, and so it, it does seem like there's concern about those and those are the ones that would have trouble, uh, accessing credit and things like that. But also I think the reason that they got so cheap is because some of these are areas that people weren't that interested in already. So like oil is a little bit different. It was kind of sudden what happened there, but in retail, some of those stocks were pretty, um, disliked for a long time. In fact, some of the prices were pretty low on, on, uh, them. And so, uh, because of that, you have some attractive uh, pricing on some of that stuff, including things that are like in malls and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, Carl Icahn, he was on Bloomberg, I believe it was last Friday or Saturday. I watched it and he said one of his biggest shorts and he was talking about, he's like, you know, for me, it's risk reward. I come from, you know, Graham and Dodd. His biggest short, Jeff, is on a, I believe it's on like an ETF that is like a commercial real estate ETF or something like that. Maybe he went and structured it you know, some way, uh, some other way, but that's what he's, um, short. Yeah, that makes sense to me because the things that are kind of expensive that are in danger, I would say are a lot of the, um, real estate things, whether it's REITs of different kinds or whatever, more so than the companies that are the tenants. Some of the tenants are a little, uh, cheap to short as a value investor. Uh, but that's not necessarily always the case with the landlords. If you were looking for an oil company, because we've been getting a lot of emails from people mm-hmm. in like oil or just looking in that area just because of obviously a lot of companies have gone so cheap. What are some things that you would look for? It's hard to say. I have looked at some oil companies and I haven't found anything that looks all that interesting like, to me. What, what have you looked at? What companies? Do you have an example uh, of one? I, I've looked at mostly some very small companies. Um, the, the problem with a lot of them is uh, the ones that are very cheap sometimes have um, reserves in countries that I'm not that excited about. Uh, so that's a bit of a problem. And then in other cases, there's some companies that I am somewhat interested in what they already own, but they're, um, trying to develop things elsewhere. And, uh, that I'm just not a knowledgeable enough about oil stuff to really invest in a company that's doing a heavy amount of, um, development of reserves elsewhere. So, uh, you know, I could buy something that already has a lot of reserves, uh, but isn't doing a lot of, uh, CapEx, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there've been some that I've seen that are very, very small that I looked at because they looked potentially interesting and maybe they'd be interesting if, if management stopped trying to be, you know, an oil company and just tried to liquidate or something, basically just tried to uh, make money off of what they already own and didn't never try and never tried to expand the business anymore. But uh, in general, it's just, it has not been 
very uh, appealing to me. I mean, I've looked at, I can't tell you how many, um, probably five or six different ones um, that looked attractive on like a screen in terms of price to book or something like that. And it turned out that they were not when I kind of dug into them a little bit further. Have you ever looked at TPL? We've got so ask, many, so many requests for this yeah. company. People ask about it all the time. Uh, yes, I have looked at it. I have no comment on it. None. None whatsoever. I get asked about it all the time, and I always say that I have no comment. Uh, it's a, it's a very popular speculative stock. Um, that's about it. I, I don't know much uh, about how I would value it any differently than anyone else does, and uh, you know, it's not the area that I'm that knowledgeable about. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would be cautious about that. I mean, that's the problem with these oil companies. They're, they're not, the oil companies I've been looking at aren't, they're not cheap in the same way that like these retailers I'm talking about are cheap. Uh, it's a little surprising. Uh, maybe it's just takes more time for them to fall because the oil decline has been so quick, but they're not, I'm not seeing a lot of oil things that are like selling below liquidation and stuff, which you would think would be happening, especially because some of them are going to have problems with, um, trying to, uh, you know, have positive cash flows for a long enough period of time and stuff like that. So, uh, it just, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was just that they weren't that cheap coming into it or what, but I'm not seeing the same sorts of bargains in oil stuff that I can tell as when we talked about things like when we talked about cruise lines or restaurants or retail or anything like that, it just, the, the cheapness of them versus what they might be worth just doesn't seem to be there. Got it. What about restaurants then? So we've talked a lot about Cheesecake Factory. I guess, how do you handicap restaurant? Because we're starting to open back up, right? So Dallas mm-hmm. is open up today mm-hmm. and there's like a 25% occupancy rule. Okay. How are you thinking about that? Like with these companies going forward? I mean, isn't that going to kill restaurants? I would assume so because for example, at 25% occupancy, that doesn't make any sense for your staff to come back. The staff would make more money on unemployment than coming back and getting tips at 25% occupancy. So, I mean, you could try to get your staff back, but I don't know why they come back unless they just want to work. <laughs> um, but financially, it doesn't make a lot of sense for them. Uh, so it, it doesn't make a ton of financial sense to run a restaurant at such low numbers necessarily. Although I don't know for each restaurant exactly what that works out to be, but I think it's pretty hard to run them that way. Um, but I assume that that number will go up a lot, you know, that that's just a temporary thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It could be very hard for, I don't know. It depends on how people react. Um, uh, Quan, who, uh, I worked with for a while, who's in Vietnam, sent me videos of what it looks like in Vietnam after they open back up and stuff. And, you know, they've got plenty of, uh, packed restaurants and stuff there. I mean, it's not exactly the same as it was before. But immediately, as soon as they were allowed to go back into restaurants, people did crowd into them very quickly. Um, I don't think that's quite how they'll open things up in the U.S., but uh, it depends. I don't know. It's possible that it might have a negative effect for two years. Do you think it's going to spread when we open back up? I mean, I think Texas reported today, actually, the highest cases in COVID since the whole quarantine, and we're opening back up. Yeah, I don't... The thing is, I don't know how important it is for the stock market and for us investing in businesses and stuff like that, uh, what the numbers are. I thought for a long time, what matters is the reaction of uh, politicians and stuff. So if there's a higher tolerance for having cases, then their behaviors changed. 
And it might be because people have been locked up for a long time now. So they may have a different attitude about it. And they're starting to see the economic pain of it and stuff like that. So I'm not sure that if you start to see cases increase to the same levels that they were at before, that you'll see the same reactions. Like, I mean, you'll probably see waves or at least um, outbreaks of the, in certain places at different times throughout, um, you know, every pretty much throughout. Uh, it'll be somewhat seasonal. But um, when that happens, I wouldn't be surprised if the reaction isn't as strong. Uh, in some ways, it's not it's not strong in terms of shutting everything down and stuff like that. Uh, is more um, targeted or whatever, just because I don't know that there'll be the same level of acceptance from businesses and from individuals, uh, businesses and you know citizens who vote and stuff. We're pretty remarkably okay with it this first time, but I don't know if they all knew how long it would go on for and how much uh, harm it would do, and so there will be a vocal group if there's attempts to shut things down again in the future in a way that there wasn't the first time. Do you think the market has discounted like all that? I mean, are you surprised that we've rallied back as far as we have in the market? I mean, you said the other day, which is a pretty, I've never heard it come out of your mouth before. And I was surprised. You said that you were the bearish you've ever been on the stock market in your, you know, 20 plus or as long as you've been investing. That's right. Yeah, that's true. I'm not sure that I'm surprised that it came back because as I mean, I'm trying to think of a bear market where it didn't come back by this amount, you know, um, it, it, if you drop by however much we you know dropped by uh, that quickly, actually, we've never dropped that quickly, um, then you tend to bounce back uh, pretty strongly. So yeah, I am the most negative on um, the overall market, certainly. Uh, the reason for that is just it's very expensive. And then combined with that is you're talking about a recession of some size and potentially a pretty major recession. Um, stocks have never been remotely this, or I should say stocks have never stayed remotely this expensive during a recession. Uh, never, like not even close. What do they usually so, look like in a recession? Uh, I mean, on average over an entire, I mean, you're talking, uh, I mean, so there have been recessions in the past. So the actual decline in recession is not necessarily all that big. Um, I did a thing where I looked back at all the recessions that I could find using Schiller P numbers and stuff like that. And on average, if you take years before recession in a recession, after recession, it's not huge. Your, your decline is normally about 15 or 20% or something in the recession year uh, on average. So if you average all 12 months or something, not from top to bottom, you know, news reports and stuff always tell you top to bottom. So top to bottom, yeah, it's 30, 40%, whatever. But if you just bought on an average day in 2019 and then sold on an average day in 2020, how much would you lose if it was like a normal recession? It would only be like 15 or 20%. The recession thing is not the biggest factor in stocks. Um, the, the much bigger factor is the valuation. So the fact that the valuation was so high is problematic because there have only been a few times in history where you had meaningful recessions um, at, or even recessions at all, at times where you had incredibly high prices like you have now. So for instance, you could compare it today to um, the most recent, the two most recent recessions both had really high stock prices. The one that's more in line with today's prices is the financial crisis. But you could say, okay, well, it's totally different than financial crisis. It won't be as bad. Okay. 
then you could say, well, it'll be like 2000 then. But see, the problem is 2000 was very expensive. So although the recession was very mild in 2000, this recession will be much worse than that one. Um, stock prices were, you know, probably mm, a third or more expensive. I don't know, between 1.3 and 1.5 times more expensive, I would guess. Um, because of that, they don't necessarily have to fall nearly as much. Then to find the next time that you had stocks at remotely expensive levels in a recession, you have to go back to the 70s. Because at the other times when there were recessions, stocks weren't that expensive, weren't remotely as close to being as expensive as they are now. Um, and then before that, you have to go to the 20s. So the only things that match up in any way in terms of being a very high stock price and then a recession are like 1929, 1973, 74, uh, 2000, 2007 on, and then today. And there are reasons why you could say none of those past ones apply. Because either the recession won't be as bad as some of those, or all of those, except for 2000, or the one exception being 2000, which is a very mild recession, the prices were higher then. So the prices now are higher, I would say, than all of those past times, although they're not that much higher than the financial crisis. We're in a pretty similar valuation situation to where we were in the financial crisis compared to the 70s and the 20s and stuff, we're actually more expensive, I would say. Um, but those were bad. Uh, I mean, the 20s was a bad recession in the. What about interest rates? And that's the argument a lot of people make. How stocks yeah. can be cheap today because interest rates are so low. And those other markets that you were just talking about, interest rates were at different points. Yeah, well, nor in some cases, although, you know, in some of them, they were immediately brought down to nothing. So the last recessions, they were brought down to nothing. Um, so it is true that if interest rates are lower, that potentially makes stocks more attractive. The problem is um, that I've always had with that argument is that stocks are very uh, a long, very long duration asset. So they're exposed to even more interest rate risk than say like a 30 year bond or something like that. For that reason, because they're worth the cash flows of that they're gonna have all the way through the future, which is very long. So because of that, they are significantly affected by the risk that interest rates might rise in the future. So it does make some sense to say that if interest rates are very low, stocks can stay very high. The problem with that is it's really an argument that stocks that interest rates have to be low and stay low. And that's difficult because the low and stay low part means that you're pretty exposed to the possibility of high uh, losses in the stock over time. And that's really the big danger. It's hard for people to know this because their um, interest rate moves over time have so much momentum. They last for so long that people um, have trouble with the idea that they're cyclical. So because interest rates might fall for 30 years, in, in a, not necessarily exactly in a row, but basically decline for 30 years and then rise for 30 years or something like that. It's very easy to forget what happens when they go in the wrong direction. So because people have lived through a time where they remember what happened from like the eighties through today, a period of falling interest rates. They don't remember what happened in the period from like the forties through the seventies. Cause remember in, in like uh, right after world war two interest rates on like corporate bonds and things were incredibly low, incredibly low. And so stocks should have been really, really attractive. Uh, in fact, they were much cheaper then than now. So um, they, I would say there's a lot of risk to counting on the idea that interest rates will stay low. 
And the upside is incredibly limited because it doesn't help you much, the fact that interest rates are very, very low, if that's the point that you're starting from. What you really want to do, if you could predict things about interest rates, is to buy stocks when, while you own the stocks, interest rates will be falling the whole time. Uh, but I mean, that would require you to predict it. So I think that's a significant problem. And I've looked many times at stuff about interest rates because I've tried to do things with banks and insurers and stuff. The problem is trying to plug in interest rates as an idea of earnings for a bank or insurer or something is only useful if you're an analyst who's trying to predict the next few years of earnings. It isn't useful in valuing the stock really, because the problem is that what the Fed funds rate is now or a variety of other interest rates is not helpful in predicting what it'll be in 10 or 15 years, which you need to predict on average what it'll be over at least 15 years to value a stock um, using that using the interest rate as an input. So just because you have interest rates at historical lows doesn't tell you anything about where they'll be when you go to sell, which is the problem. So it, it tells you that you're justified in buying the stock. The problem is that when you buy a stock, you don't really need to worry what it's worth now. You need to worry what it'll be worth when you sell. So you would need to know what interest rates are when you sell. And there's just, as far as I can tell, so little relationship between interest rates at one point in time and then what they are uh, 10 or 15 years later. It, you know, Sometimes they are very um, flat or very cyclical or whatever, and sometimes they follow a very clear pattern in which they're dropping that entire time or they're rising that entire time. So you could end up selling into a situation where your interest rates are incredibly different than they are today. Got it. What does the individual do though, right? Everybody listening is you know, either A, they have some cash that they probably want to put to work or like this individual that emailed you, he said, what is a good strategy for investing his savings such that I can live 100% off my investments and be financially independent of the need for a job for the rest of my life? And I think it's an interesting topic because interest rates, I mean, gone are the days where rates are like what, you know, five, six, 7%. Maybe somebody mm -hmm. retires with a million bucks or $2 million, I don't know what that number is. You know, you put it in some, um, some type of high-yielding investment and you go on about your life. But now, I mean, what does the individual do? Right. And what he talks about is if he can spend 4% of uh, his savings over time. Yeah. And, and um, so normally, you know, at normal valuations, you could spend about 5%. Um, if you were in, let's put it this way, if you're in stocks, uh, we'll ignore bonds and stuff. So if you were in stocks, um, you could spend about 5% and you'd have a very high chance. It might be 90% or something of that effectively being like a perpetual. Um, so basically a perpetual source of funding. So let's put aside the idea of retiring and think about it as being like an endowment or something. Let's say I want to give a gift to some school. If I give a gift to some school and say you can spend 5% of it, forever, it will, in fact, there's a very high chance that it'll compound forever. Uh, the only real risks to it are that something will go wrong in the early years, meaning I, the school will spend too much of it. And that's an incredibly high risk right now. So what unfortunately I said in the email is I don't think that there's any way that I would consider reliable that you can really count on being able to have an early retirement where you're drawing down 4%, especially because he talked about having a mix of stocks and bonds and things. I don't think there's any way to do it. Um, you could do it. It could work out, um, but you're taking a risk. You can't based on the idea that you won't have to work again. And I wouldn't say that in other times. Uh, if this was uh, you know, early 2009, uh, I would say, yeah, no problem. You can spend 4% of the principal and you'll be fine, but not today. 
because the the expected returns are too low. Um, they're just you know they're just too low, and that's not taking into account anything about a recession. That's just taking into account where the prices are already. Um, and when stock prices are this high, you have incredibly different returns. Uh, a very long time ago, I did a whole series on my blog in like 2006 uh, using a different method from the uh, Schiller PE method, but same sort of idea. And it's uh, one of the things I did was I divided the market years up into eight year into eight groups um, from the 1930s to the 1990s. And the um, point growth in the Dow, for example, so I use point growth because I didn't want to bias things with dividend yields being higher in cheap years. So the, the, obviously returns would be better whenever the dividend yields high. So just buying cheap things creates more income. Um, but put that aside and just talk about capital. So it's a little more favorable to the expensive years. When I did that, um, the bottom two eighths, so the bottom quarter of years, uh, in the sense of they were the most expensive quarter of years, only returned 3% a year over 15 years. Um, <laughs> the top one, by the way, does like 12 or 13%, so, uh, the cheapest year. So there's a tremendous difference. And the big difference is really the top uh, quarter of years in terms of being too expensive. So um, it's a really big problem. And it's of all, uh, I think people have too little faith in the idea of these valuations being your future in the stocks. Um, in, in, in an index and in passive investing, you could do active management. Like I said, you could hold cash and then buy things later, but this is not some sort of weird technical market timing thing. Um, it is a very good prediction of what your future is going to be. Uh, it's hard to predict certain things about nominal and real returns and stuff. And that complicates things a little bit, but your returns will not be that good in the 2020s. Um, and you can tell that ahead of time. How? Uh, because of things like, for example, the Schiller PE. So will you, I can give you three examples. They all will point to the same thing, or actually four examples. I just gave you one, which is my normalized PE thing that I did. Yeah. So, so normalized PE is just taking the last 15 years, drawing a line at 6%, and then averaging it out. So you just take all the past 15 years, you assume that earnings always compound at 6%, and then you just average those 15 years instead. The other three methods are market cap to GDP, which is like a price to sales ratio for the market, the Schiller P, which is like a price to average past uh, earnings, and Tobin Q, which is uh, like a price to book measure. It's actually a placement cost measure. And this one is the most um, problematic for people arguing that the market can overcome a high valuation from an economic perspective, because what it means is that if the Tobin Q is at a very high level, the market's price is well above replacement cost. It means that you could basically build the companies that you have now from scratch at a lower price than what people are pricing them at. Now, of course, for some companies, you'd say, well, how can you replace Google or how can you replace the Union Pacific or something? Well, you can't realistically. But for most of the companies that you have in an index like the S&P or something, you basically can uh, replace them. And so you can look at that number. And that's a really concerning one. And you can just see it in day-to-day -day things that I see in valuations all the time. Like I, uh, you live in apartments that are the company that owns and stuff are publicly traded. I do as well. You can clearly see that investors are willing to price those public entities at prices that don't make a lot of sense. Because if um, someone went out and borrowed money and built apartments, 
they would have be able to do that at a price well below what's sure. being capitalized in the public markets. And that shouldn't happen. Over time, that shouldn't happen. Because if it does happen, you can think about it that that's what they should do, frankly. Uh, like, for instance, the argument about interest rates being low, right? Interest rates being low can be good for stocks, but of course, it has downsides for stocks too, because it means things like, well, then shouldn't you build more apartments? Shouldn't you build more chips? Shouldn't you build more of all sorts of things that you need uh, interest for, that you need to borrow to build? Well, if you do that, then that those things will bring down the returns on the um, stocks. For instance, if you have a publicly traded apartment uh, complex owner, and then you have competitors that aren't publicly traded, well, if interest rates are really low, they should build apartments next to yours. And that should bring down the returns on your apartments. You know, mm-hmm. So what's happening when you have the interest rate stuff that we're talking about is not so much... Um, uh, I think it's described, I think people imagine it more as a theoretical sort of thing, like here's interest rates and here's uh, stocks, right? And that there should be an effect on stocks. That's absolutely true. It's an asset and there should be an effect on it. But there should also be an effect on all sorts of other assets too. So the problem with it is, usually what happens is there's a reaction in stocks because they're an incredibly liquid asset. So stocks go up a lot, but is that really that rational? Because if stocks go up a lot, shouldn't the price of homes around the area be going up as much and apartments and private businesses? And why would they move at different, why wouldn't they increase in the same sort of way given interest rates um, as stocks would? Because it's quicker to do it in stocks. You know, it's easier. Anyone can do it. Anyone can go out and buy stocks when they see that happen. But that's a, in the long run, not a sustainable thing. Um, you, if you have low interest rates, that should pr- push up the price of all sorts of assets, not just publicly traded assets. So if you see a sign that publicly traded assets are way more valuable um, than private ones, that's not a, usually a good sign. That's a sign that the market's overvalued. So what does the individual do, right? So he, let's put you in a hypothetical. So let's say um, your parents' money, for example, let's say they weren't, I mean, full disclosure, clients of focus compounding. What would you tell them to do with their money? Um, so I think the, we have a lot of do it yourself or investors, right? Right. Mm-hmm. In some capacity, maybe they outsource capital themselves, but I mean, what would you tell your, someone like your parents who are older mm-hmm. and maybe are retired or close to it? Mm-hmm. What does that individual do? I mean, cause that's what this guy's pretty much asking, right? In yes. a way, how do you not mm-hmm. outlive your income? And, you know, and live 100% off his investments. I don't think there's any way to do it passively with being 100% invested. I mean, it could work out. I'm not saying it can't work out for this person. But it just, there's no reliable method. If we're talking about a confidence level of like, there's a 90% chance that this is going to work out for you. No, I mean, as I went through there, I think there's a decent chance that you'll end up in the next five to 10 years eating through about 40% of your portfolio. And you'll also have to cut your spending a bit too in real terms. If there's inflation, you won't be able to increase how much you spend to live on each year. So that's pretty rough. Um, and if you, if you draw down your, your principal, but from uh, 100% to like say 60% or so over time, and I don't mean to imply there's a 40% drop in the market. What I mean is that he's spending. Um, so the fact that the market's flat, if he's spending 5% a year is eating into that. Um, you have a problem. 
So the most logical thing is to hold more cash. Uh, the reason why you would hold more cash there's a few things you could do, but the most logical one is to hold more cash. The reason why you can hold more cash is because um, two things happen at the same time, usually. One, the cost of holding cash goes down. So in other words, in general, it's not that likely that you'll have very good stock returns when valuations are very high. Uh, it happens occasionally. We had a year last year where it happened. The number of stretches where you can put three years <laughs> where you start at very high valuations and three years later, you've had good returns. It's very, very rare. I could find examples where you had maybe 7% of your returns for three years or something, but it's just incredibly rare. Um, almost all the really amazingly good returns over as long as three years in the market come from average and below average uh, prices. So they just don't happen in really high expensive markets. Uh, I know the perception is different from that. People think that high markets sometimes have very high returns. Um, and sometimes they do for a year. I can come up with examples where it happens for a year. There's actually several examples of that, but it doesn't tend to happen over a few year period. Um, even now, if we look over the last three years, we had a, one very big year, but the three taken together isn't that impressive right now. Um, so the cost is lower. You're, you're not as likely to miss out on big gains. And then the opportunity is a lot higher that you'll be able to use that cash at lower prices. Because what tends to happen very strongly is that high valuations in stocks uh, tend to precede extremely low valuations. Um, you go from top to bottom very quickly. So you do have this advantage that um, there's just a much bigger chance that you might be able to use it at very low prices. So I think, I mean, my advice would be, I mean, my Biggest part of advice is <laughs> if you're thinking about retiring early or something, don't do it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, this is not the right decade to do it in. Um, but the other piece would be don't be afraid to hold cash. Now, the, you can do other things. One of the most logical ones in general is picking two different assets. And um, this is because of how volatile things will be. So if things are going to be very volatile, one advantage that you do have uh, not really for, for diversification purposes, but for the possibility of outperforming is that like, for instance, this person wants to hold some bonds and stuff, which isn't something I'm really uh, would be all that much in favor of. However, constant rebalancing of stocks and bonds, if they're very liquid, um, can actually increase your returns. So if there's high volatility, um, then every time that your bond position goes to 25%, you bring it back to 30% by selling stocks and buying bonds and, and uh, vice versa, actually can get you good returns. I don't know what the numbers are for the last uh, two months or something, but I would expect it would be pretty good if you had a portfolio of 50% bonds, 50% stock, and you just kept rebalancing it every time they were, say, 5% or something out of position. Because when there's really high volatility, actually that um, does this really well. So it's a theoretical thing that in theory, you should do really well that way. But in practice, in the long run, it doesn't work that well because one of the two assets you pick doesn't perform as well as the other. So for instance, stocks, you have to pick something else to be with stocks and that lowers your returns. And two, there's like frictional costs and tax things and stuff. But if there's extreme volatility, that actually does work. So if, you, you know, if someone wants to do that, then constant rebalancing of it during um, times like this would be an advantage. Um, uh, the thing that would be best to constantly rebalance would be cash if you have to. So holding a part of your portfolio in cash and part in stock and then rebalancing all the time. 
makes the most sense. But I would say having a certain level at which you do buy. And I gave that example here. Um, and you can do it lots of different ways. I gave an example of like, look, if you want to hold cash at a certain level based on how many standard deviations you are above normal valuations or something, what that means is that if you get to an average level, you're 100% in cash. Um, 100%, sorry, 100% in stock. Um, the reason for that is there's, you don't actually need to know when stocks are undervalued. It's actually not important because from an asset allocation basis, if stocks are quote unquote fairly valued, if they're at their long-term average, right, then you should be 100% in stocks in the long run. You could choose to be less for diversification purposes for volatility and stuff, but your returns will probably be best if you're 100% in stocks whenever stocks are at their long-term average. So all you have to worry about is how far above your long-term average are you. And right now I'd say we're very far above our long-term average. So that's the concerning part of it. Um, the weird part now in terms of risks and stuff is where it's just so rare to be um, at a very far above trend level in valuations at the same moment at which you know you're in a recession. Um, because obviously recessions tend to have big drops. So, you know, if you took both of those facts into account, the decline would be, you know, if you took the fact that of what is a normal valuation level in a recession, <laughs> it's incredibly low versus where we are now. No one's anticipating that as far as like, even what I've heard, I mean, not no one, there's probably some very always bearish people out there, but anything I've heard from people who are saying things that sound very alarmist, they're not even giving you a number. That's what it would be. If it was sort of the normal, say, GDP to market cap, uh, I mean, market cap to GDP or a normal Schiller P or something during a recession, those aren't that high. You know, those are um, like Schiller P or something that would be, um, well, in a recession, it would probably be 30% or so below the bottom that we were at, not 30% below today. Um, you know, things like that, which is not usually what I hear people talking about. I mean, what about the argument, and I've heard people say this on Twitter and stuff, about value just being different nowadays, A, because the perception of value, you have quote unquote value investors willing to pay, you know, 30 times plus earnings for companies if they think the growth is there, right? Um, and then in this past, I guess, downturn, if you want to call it, crash, everything got smoked, including stocks that were quote unquote value stocks and cheap. Yeah. And the ones that rebounded faster, um, you know, back up weren't necessarily the value stocks that also, you know, if they didn't fall just as much, they fell just as hard. Yeah, uh, that's true. And so as long as that perception exists, that'll work out. I mean, that's always true with markets. So what I'm talking about is the valuations and stuff, but as long as people have a perception, um, as long as there's a consensus perception of something, it'll keep happening. So, I mean, Japan was expensive in the eighties for several years and, you know, peas could go from 50 to 100 or something because people kept believing that that was okay. If people believe that now, then it'll last for a certain amount of time. Uh, so yeah, I totally agree that in the short term, if there's uh, a general perception among people that, you know, compounders and things like that are very attractive and you can pay very high prices for them. I mean, let's just take the biggest stock, uh, the biggest stocks in the S&P 500, I guess, or fang stocks, whatever you want to call it. So like Facebook and um Google and Microsoft and companies like that Amazon. and Apple. Yeah. And Amazon. Uh, I don't, some of them, I don't know the exact prices on uh, multiples because I'm not sure there's an easy way to calculate them. I don't know that Amazon is for instance, but um, I'd say they're at 20, 
to 30 times earnings, probably um, something like that. Right. So the thing is um, like, here, here's the issue with that. If you think about the uh, rule of 72 or something, so doubling or how long it takes to double, the thing that's more useful about that rule is to take into account the price of the stock. So for instance, we own a stock in the UK that has a P of four. And why that's important is that the stock can basically quadruple um, to get to a P of 16 before the earnings have to increase to help your compounding. So you take 72 and then you basically divide by that four and you realize that becomes the rule of 18 for how much this company has to actually grow to get you a double in the stock. Not very much at all, right? Whereas like when you take Microsoft and things like that, Microsoft's a good example because I think it is at like 30 times earnings or something. So that's really becomes the rule of 144. It, the company has to um, double for you to double if you was a 16 PE. But if a PE is going to go from 32 to 16 at some point, which it will at some point, um, then you're going to have to double twice, basically. You know, you need to double and then you need to double just to overcome the halving of the stock that happens even though the business does okay. So many of these businesses are perfectly good, but you run into the problem of with this, what this valuation stuff's all about, that you have to overcome really high uh, growth hurdles. And those stocks have done well. Uh, those businesses, I mean, have done well. But, you know, in general, it's not like the S&P 500 has been growing much. You know, we've had multiple expansion, but it's not like, you know, take away tax cuts. There hasn't been a lot of growth compared to other periods in time for for the actual company's underlying um, income and stuff like that. So I, I, there absolutely could be that certain stocks do perform really well. If you pick the right business, they can overcome very high PE ratios. But if you take an entire index like the S&P 500, we're, it's pretty clear what its future will be in terms of growth and stuff. It's not like it can greatly outperform that or not. So when I say an index is overvalued, there's a level of confidence in that that you don't have if I say Microsoft is overvalued. I don't know if Microsoft is overvalued. It's hard to figure that out to any degree of confidence, but it's not that hard to figure out if the S&P 500 is overvalued. That's much easier because the quality isn't really up for discussion. The quality is incredibly average of those 500 uh, taken together. Got it. Cool. Jeff, um, I'm glad you're able to put that CFP to use and bring us some asset allocation and financial planning advice. And that is obviously a joke. Well, if you want to get access to this email, I thought it was a really good one because it's something that we haven't talked about ever. We never no. talked about no. something like this. Um, uh, go over to my Twitter, I Focus Compound, and you'll be able to get the link to that. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning with Jeff and myself here today on the number one value investing podcast in the world. Jeff, I'm looking out my window and mm -hmm. the highway, it's backed up just like it was too. All right. So I guess people are back to work and people are, are back out. I mean, I'm not going to go. Are you going to go out? Am I going to go out? I mean, like, uh, are you going to go be in public and, you know, 20, like, would you go, are you going to go eat at a restaurant? Oh, I don't know about that. The are problem, you going back to Starbucks? They haven't opened it back up yet. Uh, the, the problem for me is that I, what I miss is being outside uh, because unfortunately, because they closed everything else, uh, around where I live, it's like, you've seen pictures of beaches and things. It's like that in terms of parks and stuff. So there's like no place to move around outside. So once people start going back to their works, hopefully they will, their work, uh, hopefully they'll stop crowding around everywhere 
outside and I could like, you know, walk around and stuff without having uh, it being like I'm in Manhattan. Yeah, you're, you're where you live. I, when I was there the other day, it, it kind of felt like I was in a ghost town. Even like restaurants and yeah. I mean, everything was just like closing down. Yeah, absolutely. Place. Yeah. It's, kind it's of mostly a, it's mostly restaurants. It's restaurants, hotels. That's about it. I mean, there is our office buildings too, but it's a lot of restaurants, obviously. So, yeah. Just good taking on a stretcher. Crazy, crazy. Well, we hope everybody has a great weekend. We will be back at it on Monday. If you're listening and you want us to go over a question that you have, you can email, uh, either email it to me, info at focuscompound.com, or feel free to send it over in a Twitter DM or just shoot me a tweet and I will uh, cue it and we'll chat about it on Monday. Everyone have a great weekend and we will see you then. Take care.